I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you do too. And the next set of episodes have another thing in common. I recorded each one with musical accompaniment in front of a live audience, and I sat down for a conversation with the author after the story. Today's story was written by Nora K. Jemison and recorded in front of an audience in her hometown of Brooklyn, New York. Nora is the author of the highly acclaimed trilogy of novels known collectively as The Broken Earth. Those novels earned her back-to-back-to-back Hugo Awards for Best Novel. She's also written many, many amazing short stories. Today's story is one of her older stories, first published about 10 years ago, but Nora just published a brand new collection of amazing speculative fiction called How Long Till Black Future Month. You can find that in bookstores and online right now. And I lucked out with an amazing musical accompaniment provided by the keyboardist Ralph Reel. You can find him playing solo or with Odyssey and Good Company. Now, what else do you need to know before we begin? Well, the story I'm reading is a little bit law and order and unsolved mysteries, but with an N.K. Jemison twist. And remember, stay tuned after the story ends for my onstage conversation with Nora. Enjoy. Let's take a deep breath. And begin. Playing Nice with God's Bowling Ball by N.K. Jemison. I didn't mean for anything to happen to Timmy. Jeffy Hansen sat before Grace in a chair big enough to swallow him. His head bowed and hands limp in his lap. I told him not to feed it like that. I told him what would happen. Let's just start at the beginning. Detective Grace Anaton gave Jeffy a reassuring smile, though he didn't lift his eyes to see it. In spite of herself, Grace felt sorry for the kid. She knew better. He could be some sweet-talking little punk trying to snow-job her with his big brown puppy eyes. Or a sociopath, already skilled enough at seven years old to emulate emotions he didn't feel. She shouldn't feel sorry for any confessed murderer, no matter how improbable the murder sounded. But she did. He took a deep breath and let it out in a sigh. It was for my mom, the card. I wanted to get it back from Timmy. 
You know Monster Fusion King? Grace sifted through her memory and came up with an image, a sign, in the window of a local convenience store. Monster Fusion King sold here. Some sort of card game? He nodded. Me and Timmy, we get new packs every Friday. Timmy always gets four or five. I only buy one. My mom used to give me an allowance, but when Dad went away and we moved here to the city, she had to stop. We don't have a lot of money anymore. So how do you get a new pack every week, Jeffy? Mom gives me lunch money. But at lunchtime, I get water instead of juice, and I save up what's left, and I use that to buy my pack for the week. He looked up at Grace, a different sort of guilt flickering in his eyes. Do you have to tell my mom that? Grace smiled and made a mental note to check for a financial motive if the kid's confession turned out to be more than a load of hooey. I don't think we'll have to tell her that, Jeffy. So... This all started when Timmy got a card you liked? No. He looked down at his hands again. I mean, yeah, he always had cards I liked, but that wasn't what started it. Timmy was a real collector. He even got Monster King magazine. He had almost all the cards ever made. I see. And how many cards did you have? He shrugged a little. Not so many of course. So this started last Friday when you got your new pack. He nodded. I got a, a really good card, the Cuckoo Chimera. It's a special contest card, only a few ever made. Only I didn't know that. Not then. Timmy said he'd trade me for three of his repeats, ones he already had. I mean, I said yes. He frowned and squirmed in his seat. Grace read his restlessness. I'm guessing it was worth more than three cards. Yeah. My friend Eduardo said he saw one for $300 on eBay. Holy shit, Grace thought. I gotta start collecting cards. When did you find this out, Jeffy? At school on Monday. That's when I talked to Eduardo. A lot of kids in my class are into Monster King. I see. And... You got mad. No, he looked up at her, frowning again. I didn't care about stuff like that. Timmy was my friend, but that night when I got home, my mom was crying. Why? Her car, it's really old, it broke down at work. She said she couldn't afford to get it fixed. My dad, he... Another of those little shifts of discomfort... He doesn't send money to take care of me like he's supposed to. He doesn't think I'm his. Grace's eyebrows shot up. What kind of parents would tell their child something like that? They argued a lot before he left. Sometimes I listened. I see. So your mom was upset. Yeah, she couldn't afford to get the car fixed unless she took money out of the rent. And if she did that, then we'd lose the apartment. Well, that must have made you feel really bad. An unhappy nod. I asked her what she needed to fix the car, and she said 
definitely a financial motive and definitely more than manslaughter. Grace kept her voice even. So then you wanted your card back. Yeah. I, I called Timmy that night and told him I knew he'd made a bad trade and it wasn't fair and we should reverse it and he said it wasn't his fault I didn't know about the contest cards. Jeffy's brow tightened. And then I told him about my mom and he said, yeah, right, it was a good story, but he wasn't falling for it and too bad, so sad. Jeffy looked up at her. I got mad then. I can imagine. Revenge motive too, maybe. Damn, this poor little brat might be looking at murder one. So what did you do, Jeffy? I told him I'd do anything to get the card back. I offered him everything I had, all my cards and my rollerblades and even my click-and-go robot set. But he said he was going to keep the card because in a year it might be worth twice as much. He said he would only give it to me if I gave him something really, really cool for it. And then he laughed and said I'd never be able to give him anything that cool because I was poor. So that was like asking me to give him the moon or a black hole or something. Grace shook her head. Kids could be real little monsters sometimes. And she shoved that thought aside. She was feeling sorry for the kid again. She leaned across the table and folded her hands. Jeffy, when you came into the precinct, you told the officer at the front desk that you might have killed Timmy Johnson. Is this why you killed him? Because he wouldn't give you your card back? Jeffy frowned again. No, I told you I didn't mean to. It was an accident. But if you were angry with him, I wasn't. Not once he said what he wanted. I gave it to him, and I told him how to take care of it. But he didn't pay attention. Neither had Grace, apparently. She frowned in confusion, trying to figure out what she missed. Gave what to him, Jeffy? I already told you. Jeffy said with an exasperated air. Timmy said he would give me the card back if I gave him something like the moon or a black hole. I couldn't think of anything else, and the moon was too big, so I made a black hole and gave it to him. It was just a little one, but he started feeding it this giant stuffed panda he got from Coney Island last year. The panda was even bigger than he was. I tried to stop him. I, I told him it was too big, but he dented the special container it was in, and the black hole got loose and ate him. Then, apparently oblivious to Grace's stare, the boy burst into tears. I told him to be careful. In the observation room, Grace rubbed her face with her hands. Beyond the one-way glass, little Jeffy sat with his head down on his folded arms. So, the kid is crazy, said Captain DeWitt. Not necessarily. Talia Farrow, Grace's partner, regarded the boy through the glass. Could be a cry for attention or some bullshit like that. He killed somebody, but... I can't say where the body is. No, wait, he only thinks he killed him. No, wait, he shook his head. Prank, maybe, or just a flat-out lie. Grace shook her head. Put a kid that age in front of a cop and they might tell little white lies, but not the kind of whoppers this kid is spinning. He actually believes what he's saying. Could he be 
Taliaferro waved his hand. I don't know, confused? Maybe the Johnson kid fell into a sinkhole. This kid sees what happens, doesn't know the word for it, and calls it a black hole. And he feels guilty because maybe he wished something bad would happen to little Timmy because little Timmy's an asshole, and he comes up with this story. The wit shook his head. We can get Dr. Howard to examine the kid if it comes to that. In the meantime, get his mother in here and take an official statement. If the kid did kill somebody, I don't want him getting off on a technicality. They took another statement from Jeffy once his mother arrived. Grace watched closely while Talia Farrow conducted the interview. Talia Farrow asked Jeffy the same questions in different ways, urged him to repeat certain details, made him describe the $300 card and retrace his steps from school to home every afternoon. But despite all that, Grace detected no inconsistencies in the boy's story. She watched the mother, too, Mrs. Hansen, a thin woman in a faded dress who had perpetually tired eyes, listened to the story with a little frown on her face, showing surprise only once. Not when Talia Farrow mentioned possible harm to Timmy Johnson. That had only made her frown deepen, but when Jeffy gave his black hole explanation, her eyes widened. Her breath caught and her body language screamed anxiety in a way that no detective could have missed. DeWitt noticed it too and rapped on the door to bring Talia Farrow out. Closing the door, he turned to them and folded his arms. So? Talia Farrow shook his head. I can't crack the kid, but the mom sure is interesting. DeWitt sighed and nodded. And here I was, ready to call this a case of too much high fructose corn syrup. Shouldn't we send a forensics team over to the Johnsons? Grace asked. Hard to indict anybody for murder if there's no evidence that a murder actually occurred. I don't want to send a team yet. I'm with Tally on this maybe turning out to be a prank, but you two go check it out. And holler if you see any black holes. Mr. Johnson wasn't home. Mrs. Johnson let them in. She was a pretty woman, but there was a dull sort of glaze to her eyes that Grace had seen before. Denial, or probably shock. That desperate, creeping fear that only the parents of a missing child could ever know. It's about time, she said when Grace and Talia Farrow entered the house. Despite the words, her voice was without heat, without any emotion, in fact spilling out of her in a soft droning babble. I called in the missing persons report this morning. Y you want a description of what he was wearing? I've been trying to find a good photograph. Grace cleared her throat uneasily. <clears throat> We're not exactly here about the missing persons report, Mrs. Johnson. She glanced around the foyer of the place, a four-bedroom duplex and a nice brownstone, worth a lot these days, but probably not when they bought it. There was something strange about the place she noticed at once, something off-kilter, but she couldn't put her finger on the source of that feeling. Mrs. Johnson walked past them toward the living room. A half-burnt cigarette smoldered in an ashtray on the table. She picked it up and waved them toward the couch. Talk to me about what? Her eyes lit in sudden, hungry anxiety. You found Timmy? 
No, Mrs. Johnson, I'm sorry. Taliaferro looked uncomfortable. Do you know a friend of Timmy's named Jeffrey Hansen? The Johnson woman seemed to wilt. Her dull gaze returned. Jeffy? Sure, I know him. Weird kid, but nice enough. What's this about? Why do you say he's weird, Mrs. Johnson? He just is. She made a vague gesture with a cigarette. Smoke swirled in loops around her. Quiet, polite. Her lips quirked in a faint, fleeting smile. Well, maybe I'm just used to Timmy, but I've heard weird things about his mom. She shook her head. Anyway, what does he have to do with my son? Taliaferro cleared his throat. This afternoon, ma'am, Jeffy came into the precinct and asked to be arrested. He said, and I quote, he flipped through his notepad, I think I killed Timmy Johnson. It was an accident, but I think maybe I should go to jail. The Johnson woman's face went slack for an instant. Timmy's dead? Quickly, Grace spoke up. We're not certain, Mrs. Johnson. Jeffy says it happened here in Timmy's bedroom, but obviously you would have been the first to know if that was true. And Jeffy appears to be confused about the details of the crime, so we can't jump to any conclusions about Timmy yet. The shock began to clear from Mrs. Johnson's face. She swallowed, took a breath, noticed that her cigarette was about to drop some ashes and absently stubbed it out. When, uh, when will you know more? Well, first we'd like to examine the crimes, uh, the place where it supposedly happened, Grace said. May we? The woman nodded and waved them toward the stairwell. Up on the left. She fell silent then, lost in the days of her own terrible thoughts. Grace and Talia Farrow glanced at each other, then made an awkward exit to go check out the scene. But when they opened the door to the Johnson boys' room, they both stopped in shock. Parts of the room were still normal. A bookcase set into one wall held all of the usual accoutrements of the small boy lifestyle. Large binders labeled Monster King in a blocky hand. An open box of Legos. A row of books arranged with a mother's neatness. On a nearby wall were posters. One of the Yankees' Derek Jeter and another of some spiky-haired anime character. Below the posters was a bed, more or less in order... They could see that at one point it had been neatly made, but now the sheets hung half on the floor and the bed itself had been partially pulled away from the wall. It dipped at a precarious angle toward the yawning, splintered pit in the middle of the hardwood floor. What the... Talia Farrow murmured aloud. Grace stepped into the bedroom, moving gingerly, even though the outermost edges of the floor seemed stable. The pit started a foot or two into the room. From there, the floor had been demolished in a rough circle, bits of plaster and wood sloping dangerously toward a hole maybe five inches across the center. They could glimpse the room below, the kitchen, through the opening. 
Grace had a sudden vision of a whirlpool made of wood and lathing rather than water, twisting with hellish speed as it descended into... What? A black hole, like the kids said. She pushed that thought aside. Looks like somebody dropped God's bowling ball in here, Talia Farrow muttered. We thought he'd run away, said Mrs. Johnson. Grace spun around. She'd been too stunned by the hole to hear the woman coming up the steps behind them. That's why we waited till today to file the report, Mrs. Johnson said in her heatless, spiritless voice. We thought he'd gotten into something, fireworks maybe, and run away because he thought we'd be angry. But I don't care about the floor. She rubbed her eyes. Grace's heart ached for her. If, if you find him, tell him that. The floor doesn't matter. I, I just want him home. Grace pointed at the floor. Mrs. Johnson, do you have any idea what could have caused that? The woman looked up, her eyes haunted and very, very lost. No, said Mrs. Johnson, but there's one in the kitchen, too. They searched the basement as carefully as they could in the area under the kitchen hole, but there was nothing, no blood, no fireworks residue that they could see, no signs of a struggle. The basement had been set up as Mr. Johnson's den with an old couch and TV and ugly carpeting. The couch was out of position just as the Johnson kid's bed had been and the TV stand lay on its side, the TV a shattered wreck beside it. Aside from that, the room was clean. There was no sign of whatever had punched its way down through two floors. And there's something else weird, Grace said. Talia Farrow, who stood under the kitchen hole peering up at it, glanced around at her. What? She gestured at the couch and the floor. Where's the debris? There should be a pile of lathing down here, but there's nothing, not even dust. Talia Farrow frowned and gave the room a second look. No nest lining, either. Huh? This is a guy's private hangout zone. It should be chip bags, sports magazines, beer cans and stuff. Maybe he's the wine spritzer type. There's no remote for the TV. You think he's a Luddite too? It was all weird, Grace agreed privately. All part of the off-kilter feel of the place. Now that she'd seen the damage, Grace suspected most of the floors in the brownstone sloped a little. That was what she'd noticed before, at least subconsciously. Perspectives gone skewy, her balance slightly disrupted. If a forensics team measured the place, they would probably find all of the furniture just a teensy bit out of position and all the walls minutely warped, all pulled toward whatever had started eating its way through the Johnson's house. Whoa, hold up. Talia Farrow, peering into a corner beside the couch, straightened with something in his hand. Grace came over. It was a child's toy, or partly one. The outermost portion of the object was made of Legos, built into a box-like frame. The inner portion was a mass of what looked like 
quartz, bits of it charred, threaded through with strands of colored spaghetti, fiber optic wire, or something else. Whatever it was, it seemed to be growing out of the crystals. It's busted, whatever it is, Taliaferro said. He poked the burnt portions with the tip of a pencil. Bag it, Grace said. Maybe the lab boys can figure it out. The lab boys sent a report back a few days later. No blood traces, no fireworks residue, and the crystalline portion was simple rock sugar. The spaghetti strands were some polymer they were still trying to identify, but it would have to wait as three higher priority cases had come in. Across the bottom of the report, some wit had scrawled, chalk this one up for the X-Files and a happy face. Without a body or evidence that a murder had even occurred, they couldn't charge the Hanson kid. The holes in the Johnson's floor could have been caused by anything, and although they had the kid's confession, the assistant DA laughed at the notion of filing an indictment with the evidence they had. So Captain DeWitt ordered Grace and Taliaferro off the case. But the case lingered in Grace's thoughts for the whole week afterward. She lay awake in bed, contemplating little Jeffy Hansen's unhappy face and the yawning pit where Timmy Johnson had last been seen. Finally, she decided to follow one last lead. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire. Michelle Obama, to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Let's get back to our story. She got up early one morning and went over to the Hansons. 
Mrs. Hansen met her at the door looking more tired than ever. She didn't seem surprised to see Grace. I'm keeping Jeffy home from school today, she said. He hasn't been sleeping well lately. Do you have to talk to him again? I'd like to start putting this behind us. A child is still missing, Mrs. Hansen, Grace said. The woman sighed and held the door open. Jeffy stepped into the hallway as Grace came inside. You don't believe me, he said. He was scowling. I don't want to talk to you. He stomped out of sight. Mrs. Hansen sighed again and closed the door behind Grace. Come have a cup of coffee, at least. They sat in the claustrophobic kitchen at a table whose center was piled high with bills. The one on top bore a past due notice. Mrs. Hansen caught Grace looking and offered a thin smile. Haven't quite mastered the financials of the single mother thing yet. Grace sipped coffee. Jeffy's father doesn't help out much? Try at all? You can file a claim with the state, you know. They'd track him down for you. Hanson shook her head, running one hand over her graying hair. No, I, I don't need his money. Grace tried to use a delicate tone. Jeffy might. I know, but I can't afford a lawyer right now. All you need is proof of paternity. Abruptly, that peculiar anxious tension was there again in the woman's body language. Grace watched closely as Hanson looked into her cup of coffee, fidgeted with the handle, shifted on her chair. I don't want Jeffy taking any blood tests. Besides, it's not that important. If Jeffy killed someone because he wanted to get money for you, it's important, Mrs. Hanson. She winced. He said he didn't mean for anyone to get hurt. It sounds like you believe him. His whole story, I mean. Now the woman's face tightened in an odd expression, half proud, half rueful. Oh, yes. Jeffrey never lies. Tension gathered in the pit of Grace's belly. There have been other incidents like this? No one's gone missing or hurt before, if that's what you mean. It wasn't, and the woman damn well knew it. Grace leaned forward. Mrs. Hansen, if you know anything about Timmy Johnson and you don't tell us, you'll be an accomplice in whatever's happened to him. The woman shook her head. Curiously, she seemed to relax a bit as well. I don't know anything about that. Really, I'll admit I didn't like the boy much. This wasn't the first time he'd taken advantage of Jeffy, though Jeffy's the forgiving sort, but I certainly wouldn't have wished harm on him. Do you believe the Johnson boy is dead then? Mrs. Hansen smiled knowingly and utterly without humor. I asked Jeffy about that last night. You know what he said? What? Things are different in there, Mom. She imitated Jeffy Hansen's solemn soprano perfectly. He said Timmy still existed, sort of. That's what he said, sort of. So I looked up black holes on the internet to try and understand. You see, the flow of time around Timmy, close to the black hole, it's bent. 
It's a matter of perception. To us, the outside the hole, he vanished quickly, but will slow down as he gets closer to the hole. Eventually, if we could see at the microscopic level, he'd look to us as if he was frozen in place. But for Timmy, time is stretched out. Only an eye blink has passed since he started to fall in. He probably doesn't even know he's in trouble yet. It might take him years, by our reckoning, to fall all the way in. Or he might already be gone. It really depends on which theory you pick. She sipped her coffee, then swirled the remainder around in her cup. The dark liquid swirled about the center in a miniature whirlpool. Grace took a swallow of coffee as well, mostly to offset the chill that moved down her spine. What are you saying? That Timmy's not dead? I'm saying Timmy Johnson may very well live forever. Mrs. Hansen gave Grace another of those strange blink smiles. You still want to arrest my son for murder? Crazy son, crazy mother, Taliaferro said later that day when Grace told him about the impromptu interview. You didn't believe her, did you? It's not the first time she's pulled this loon job. What? Check this out. Taliaferro woke up his computer and googled the name of Jeffy Hansen's mother. The top of the list of responses was a site for the Aquarian Association of Abductees. Grace groaned. Is that what I think it is? Yup. Our black hole boy is, according to his mother's testimony on this site, the demi-human result of a transcendental visitation by otherworldly beings. If this is what the kid's father had to put up with, no wonder he booked. No doubt, but the handsome woman hadn't seemed crazy, Grace recalled. Far from it. Neither had little Jeffy. Any chance she might be telling the truth? Taliaferro stared at her. She felt her cheeks grow warm. That Jeffy isn't her ex-husband's kid. I mean, you know, maybe his mom had an affair with Stephen Hawking and... <laughs> and she came up with this to explain it. Hell of a way to tell a kid he's an accident. He sat back in his chair. We could always call Child Protective Services. Grace shook her head. I don't think there's any abuse or neglect here. This sounds like just another of those gentle lies parents tell their kids. Fido ran away instead of Fido got creamed by an 18-wheeler. Either way, now we know who's been putting ideas in the kid's head. Just as well we gave up on this one. He leveled a look at her then. You should let it go, too. He was right, of course. Though it troubled Grace deeply that the Johnson boy was still missing, he was just another of the ugly little loose ends that never seemed to get tied up in her job. She had done the best she could. It was time to move on. And yet... Another week passed. Timmy Johnson was put on the state and national lists of missing and exploited children. 
His father went on the evening news, weeping and begging his son to come home. Several dozen Timmy sightings poured into the division after that, then trickled off in 24 hours. All of them were false alarms. Grace wrote one last report for the file. The most likely theory of the crime was that Timmy Johnson had used some sort of explosive to severely damage his parents' home, then run away rather than face the music. There were 10,000 predators on the street who would target a scared, vulnerable little boy. The confession by Timmy's friend Jeffy was assumed to be a lonely, unhappy child's bid for attention, fueled by his lonely, unhappy mother's long-term quest for same. She put the file on her captain's desk, then got out a phone book and started making some calls. That afternoon, Grace took off work early. She made one stop along the way, then drove to PS 1138 around 3 p.m. She awaited while children filled the courtyard and began trickling away on foot and in buses and carpools. After a half hour, she caught a glimpse of a familiar dark head of hair. Jeffy Hansen walked away from the school alone, his head down, book bag sagging, and hands in pockets. Grace got out of the car and trotted over to join him. He spotted her coming and stopped. I still don't want to talk to you. Just one last thing, Jeffy. Can I walk with you, at least? Won't waste your time that way. He heaved a sigh. <sighs> okay. He resumed walking, still at the same slow pace. Do you usually walk home alone, Jeffy? No. I used to walk with Timmy. There was deep sorrow in the boy's voice. That, more than anything else, reassured Grace that she'd made the right decision. Tell me something, Jeffy. What happened to the black hole? He paused for just a step, though he resumed walking quickly. You didn't believe me before. Well, you can't really blame me for that. Nobody's ever made a black hole before. But I did some reading on it after I met you. She slipped her hands into her pockets, looking up at the bright autumn sky. The black hole started to fall into the earth, didn't it? After it ate Timmy. It would have gone to the center of the planet and kept growing there. It might have eventually eaten us all, but you stopped it. He said nothing for several seconds, and then finally, yeah, it went kind of slow at first, so I ran down to the basement and built something to stop it. Then I built something else to hold it, and I took it away. Grace felt her heart speed up. She swallowed. Never mind the sensible, skeptical questions. Never mind how he'd stopped it or how he'd contained it or how he'd created the damn thing in the first place. Those weren't the important questions right now. Where, Jeffy, where did you take it? I haven't figured out where I can put it that's safe. He slipped his backpack off one shoulder, reached inside, and pulled out a lidded coffee can. Or at least part of the strange object was a coffee can. 
The rest was a bizarre conglomeration of crystalline masses, colored spaghetti, assorted oddities. She glimpsed a silver chewing gum wrapper twisted into an odd shape inside one of the crystals and components from what had to be Mr. Johnson's TV remote. A mute button poked out of the object's side. I'm scared to leave it at home, he said very softly. Sometimes my mom cleans my room. Grace stared at the can, aware that if she once looked inside it, the universe would change. Not in the ways that mattered. Murders wouldn't stop, bad things would still happen to good people, and kids whose only crime was selfishness would still suffer fates they didn't deserve. But her place in the universe, her conceptualization of it, would be altered beyond all recognition and perhaps destroyed. For how important could her job, her life, her very existence be in a world where seven-year-olds carried black holes around in their school bags? Then the moment passed, and she lifted her eyes from the coffee can to look at the solemn face of the boy behind it, a boy whose eyes were ringed in dark circles because he hadn't slept well in weeks, a boy who held the earth's death in his hands, too afraid to let go. You can't destroy it? she asked. No, not yet. Maybe when I'm older, I'll understand it better then. Maybe I'll be able to get Timmy out too. She made herself reach out and take hold of the can. The crystals felt slightly warm under her fingertips. Then I'd better hold on to this for a while, she said, in the interest of public safety, at least until you're old enough to get rid of it. But you have to promise not to make any more. Agreed? Jeffy brightened at once, the burden of responsibility lifting from him almost palpably. Really? Okay. Then his small face clouded. But... You have to promise not to play with it, not even a little. You're a policewoman, so you have to do what's right. Not even a little, Grace agreed. In fact, I won't even open it. Then she reached into her blazer pocket and pulled out a small paper bag, which she handed to him. He frowned opened it, and took out the Monster Fusion King card. His mouth formed a big, silent... That's the one, right? It sure is, but... He frowned in confusion. It can't be the same one. Timmy had taken that one with him. It's not, but the original deal was the card for this, so... I figured the price was the same. She lifted the coffee can. Fair is fair. He grinned up at her in delight. Grace couldn't help grinning back. One day, when Jeffy grew up and came into the full power and genius that was his true father's gift, she hoped he would remember this day. 
Maybe one small act of kindness would stay with him, despite the abandonment and loneliness and cruelty he'd experienced in his life. Maybe his destiny could be shaped by the small joys of human life. A mother's love, the games of childhood, the satisfaction of making someone else's life a little easier. Maybe then, little Jeffy would grow up to build miracles instead of nightmares. Now, Grace put a hand on his shoulder, I hear the comic book shop around the corner buys rare cards. They're expecting you. Okay. He tucked the precious card into his backpack. And I'll come find you when I know how to get rid of it. I promise. All right. He waved and ran off. Grace watched him go, then headed back to her car, where she tucked the coffee can into the storage net in her trunk. That would do until she could take it up to Poughkeepsie and stow it in her mother's attic. It would be all right there for a decade or two. She drove very, very carefully on the way home. Conversation with N.K. Jensen. <laughs> uh, wow. Wow. Um, I'm saying wow, too, because I had not heard that story ever performed. Mm. And you made me love that story more than I liked it mm. in actual life. <laughs> so I was sitting there thinking, that's my story? Did I write that? Yes, woman, oh. that's your story. You oh wrote that. Oh, my God. You wrote the shit out of that story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what was the origin of Jeffy Hansen, and, and, and what possessed you to give him the power that you did? Uh, there's, no, there's no specific thing that actually causes uh, the ideas to, to develop. Mm. They just pop into my head, and I'm like, black hole in a coffee can. Hmm, what would I do with that? Um, and that was that. This is how my brain works. So it, it, just, it's, it starts maybe with a fragment. It usually starts with something bizarre, like, yeah. "Huh, I'm out of coffee. Hmm. There's a black hole where my coffee used to be." Ah. And you know, and and then it goes from there then because from there. coffee is important, y'all. Right. I mean, you don't understand. Right. So and black um, holes are mysterious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, at the time. Um, you know, I have to confess that this is not actually in the How Long Till Black Future Month uh, collection because I actually did not think it was 
like one of my better stories. It was one of the stories I wrote when I was a new author um, or a new professional author, and I was kind of trying to write things. Like I was trying out different styles and trying to figure out what was my voice. Um, and I wanted to write an old-fashioned, pulp-style science fiction story. Right. Um, so Black Hole in a Coffee Can, plus a few episodes of Law & Order, plus some old Columbo episodes. Right. And, and that was and that there was you the go. result. Yeah. Well, so. it, it, uh, it is really delicious <laughs> to not just read your words, but to um, do my best to breathe a life into them and, and to round out these wonderful characters that mm. you created on the page. Um, I, when I first read this story, I, I, could not, I couldn't get the text out fast enough to my producer, <laughs> Julia. I can't wait to read this live! <laughs> um, we are at a, a really watershed moment in speculative mm. fiction, are we not? Yeah. yeah, we're at a watershed moment in a lot of things. Yes, we are. So. True that. True that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and... You have done what no one else in the history of speculative fiction has done. You have won back-to-back-to-back Nebula Awards. Hugo's. Hugo Hugo Awards. Hugo Awards. It's okay. I got one Nebula. (laughs) But you also have a Nebula. I do have a Nebula, too. And the Hugo's Hugos are kind of famous for, um, you know, being voted on and, and, and... maintaining this sort of old white men mm. guard as the traditional winners. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's fluctuated over time. Uh-huh. Um, there was a period in the 90s, for example, when uh, there were a lot of women winners of Hugo's, and then there was a, there was a retreat for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like the election of Barack Obama and then followed yeah. by Trump. I mean, that is, that is the nature of, of the United States is, yeah. you know, people make a little progress and then there's a backlash. It's the nature of change. Yeah, that's true. Right? That's true. Um, but around the time that um, I uh, came up for my first, well, for my, not my first Hugo because I was actually nominated for something a while back, um, but around the time that the, the fifth season came up for a Hugo, mm-hmm. um, there had been effectively a kind of alt-right intrusion into mm. science fictiondom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, I don't want to get into the details of it, but, you know, it was, a, it was a very typical kind of thing that we've been seeing across the mediascape, where in gaming, in movies, in all of these different areas, um, you're seeing, like, a combination of weird Russian bots and reactionary, like... Teenagers and some old folks who are hoping to exploit the teenagers, and a lot of like straight white male angst and so forth, manifesting as as threats and mm-hmm. intimidation tactics mm-hmm. and cheating and like I said, a lot of places. Um, and so, around the time that I won, that was the, the won the first Hugo. That was. That was what was happening. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was weird. And then the second? Uh, second time, I didn't expect to win the second time. Mm-hmm. I didn't bother to go to the Hugo ceremony the first or the second uh, time because I was like, oh, they're not going to give it to me again. Um, 
you know, they already messed up once. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, so, yeah, the the, the second time, um, I think... What the I, to a degree, I think that probably the first Hugo was a reaction against the reaction or a backlash against the backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been such frustration with this reactionary group trying to basically game the system and cheat mm-hmm. to gain power mm-hmm. and and cheat and and like manipulate voting and all kinds of other things that we happen to be seeing Mm -hmm. on a macro scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And people's reaction to that was utter rage. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, the first time that I got the Hugo, I feel like that, that rage was partly what was speaking. Mm -hmm. The second time though, I I suddenly was like, Oh, maybe they actually like my book. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then at that point, I was like, you know, oh, I'm not going to go to the Hugos again. I seem to only win when I don't go. Hmm. Um, but friends and family were like, no, what's wrong with you? Um, and they convinced me to go to the third ceremony. And at which point I was like, they're not going to give it to me a third time. And yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm not good at predicting these things. So. It's probably a good thing you're not so good at predicting. Yes. Right? Very good thing. Um, and you feel like in your heart of hearts, deep at the center of your soul, you get how deserving you are of, the, of, of this trifecta. Um, imposter syndrome is a motherfucker, let me just yeah. say. That's, that's um, why I ask. Yes, my, my apologies for using that word in a, in a house of faith. But, um, but at the same time, it is a, it is a New York tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a part of me that to this day um, hesitates to, I guess, claim um, a feeling of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somewhere around, like, the nebula and the Hugo and the locus and, and the other things that I now no longer have space, I have so many of these awards at this point that I'm actually starting to run out of space. Um, which is That's what nice... we call in my family white people problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I was going to go with humble brag, but I'll take it. Um, you know, and I, I acknowledge that this is a really nice problem to have. Yeah. But I still live in a small New York place. Okay. So, <laughs> so space is an issue. Yeah. Um, so there are days when I feel like um, that like I am the greatest writer in the world. Mm-hmm. And then there are days when I feel like I'm the worst writer in the world. That is the nature of being an artist. Mm-hmm. You don't want to put your stuff out there if you don't at least for a few minutes believe that you're amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, you can't be a good artist if you don't then start critiquing yourself and, and making sure that your flaws are worked on and you try and improve and you try and um, sort of dig into what is wrong. Um, so you do have to simultaneously hold both of those beliefs in your head. In your I'm head. sure that you've had to work through that, too. Mm-hmm. You know, acting is no different. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, when you are doing an art form, you've got to believe in yourself. Right. You've also got to critique. Right. So. Absolutely. Um, do you write every day? Yes. Well, lately I do because I'm in deadline hell right now. You are working um, on another yeah. book. I have a book due at the end of this month. At the end of this month. Yeah. 
Can you tell us anything about it? Uh, yeah, um, it's actually based on, um, I won't tell you the name right now because my books tend to go through a number of name changes, but um, I'm calling it The City's Book. It is based on a short story that I wrote that is in the collection called uh, The City Born Great. Whoa, I had a minute. Um, had a moment of uh, forgetting. Um, but it's called The City Born Great, and uh, you can actually find that story online at tour.com now, uh, mm-hmm. because that's where it was uh, originally published. Um, and in that story, it's one of my New York fantasies. Um, in that story, the city of New York comes to life, um, develops its own personality, develops its own sort of energy, um, and then manifests uh, an avatar, and that Avatar is one person who lives in the city who was chosen to kind of embody its strength and its power and its complexity. Mm. Um, that was the short story. Um, and also, it fights Cthulhu. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, in the novel, um, the Avatar of New York falls into an enchanted slumber. Um, because New York cannot be embodied by one person. It needs five people Mm. for each borough. Mm. So then the five awaken, and they must form like Voltron to... (laughs) (laughs) To fight against the forces of reactionary right-wingers. Anyway, um, and Cthulhu. Thank you to the one, the only, Nora... Hey, Jemison. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith, the best in the business. We also had help from Audrey No. This episode was edited by Brendan Burns. Music provided by Ralph Reel. You can find him playing with Odyssey and with Good Company, or check out his solo records entitled Track Names, Name Tracks, and my favorite, Nappy Love. And my great and undying thanks to N.K. Jemison for allowing me to read her story. You can find it at Tor.com, and you can also read a bunch of really wonderful stories in her new collection from Orbit Books entitled How Long Till Black Future Month. Now, if you love the show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving a review, suggest a story for the show. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters. I'm LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher.